How are young people taking charge of their climate future? Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats. I'm Greg Dalton. Many climate conversations talk about impacts on future generations, but all too often, young people are not at the table or in the room. As young people looking towards a future that is increasingly unstable, I see this as a civic duty. Marissa Zuckerman is coordinator for the Bay Area chapter of the Sunrise Movement, the grassroots organization behind the Green New Deal. She and her colleagues have been pressing lawmakers and candidates to make climate action a top priority, and it's working. This Democratic presidential primary is talking about climate change in a way that I don't think any of us necessarily expected. Ben Wessel is youth vote director at Next Gen America, the environmental advocacy organization founded by billionaire activist Tom Steyer. Elections have consequences, but without more fundamental changes, shifting political winds can erase hard-fought carbon reductions. What we hope to do through our case is to force the presidency and the legislature to actually adopt laws and policies that comply with its constitutional obligation. Julia Olson is executive director of Our Children's Trust and chief legal counsel for plaintiffs in Juliana versus United States, the lawsuit brought by 21 young people accusing the federal government of failing to protect their constitutional right to a healthy climate. We'll hear from all three of them in the second part of today's show. First, I sit down with two teenage climate activists from the San Francisco Bay Area. Sarah Goody is a 14-year-old student who has organized a climate strike in San Francisco. Isha Clark is a high school student and activist in Oakland, California, who recently gained fame for a viral video in which she confronts Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein over the Green New Deal. I began by asking Isha to describe what happened in that moment outside the senator's office. There was a crowd of about 100 people, very lively, very passionate, and I spoke, and it was great. And um, there were some kids, or youth activists, excuse me, from <laughs> Bay Area, very important, from Bay Area Earth Guardians crew who wanted to present a letter that they had written to Senator Feinstein. And they invited all the young people who were there to go up and present the letter. And just for some reason, she happened to be in her San Francisco office that day. And they invited us up after some pushback and here you have the renowned Senator Feinstein interaction. <laughs> well, let's, let's go to that. In early 2019, yeah, a group of middle and high school students had this testy exchange in her office. Here's Senator Feinstein in that video talking about her climate proposal, and she's challenged by a high school student. I will give you a copy of what we do support. And you can take a look at it, and if you've got a problem with it, you can let me know. But I think it has a much better chance of passing than what this is, because there is no way to pay for what it gets done, so nothing will happen. So you, you be the judge, you take a look at it, we're going to get you a But we have come coffee. to a point where our earth is dying, literally, and it is going to be a pricey and ambitious plan that is needed to deal with the magnitude of that issue. And so we're here asking you to vote yes on the resolution for the Green New Deal because that is the only That resolution that will not pass the Senate. And you can take that back 
to whoever sent you here. Why do you tell them? Because it doesn't have a single Republican vote. And the Republicans control the United States Senate. Senator Feinstein talking with Misha Clark. Um, Senator Feinstein issued a tweet, a statement thereafter, saying, I want the children from the Sunrise Movement to know they were heard loud and clear. I've been and remain committed to doing everything I can to enact real, meaningful climate change legislation. So, Isha Clark, tell us what it was like to go stand there toe-to-toe -to -toe with a <laughs> political legend in California. You know, I think, for me, it was less about the actual interaction and what happened after that, then what happened after that. There was, I felt, accountability to what just happened. And for me, as a young person, as a person of color, I'm kind of used to people talking to me like that. Let's just be real. And so when I was in that interaction, I didn't really recognize how disturbing it was until I saw that the video hit 10 million views on Twitter and was all over CNN and all over the news. And for me, it was really powerful to have my voice become such an important weight in politics, in media. And, you know, I think the conversation now isn't really about Senator Feinstein anymore. And it's really about politicians in general and power holders in general who aren't and haven't been taking the necessary steps to reverse this climate crisis. You've also said uh, that Senator Feinstein learned and gained some respect for you. How do you think it affected her? You know, I hope that all of that is true. And, the, you know, the reality is that we, I don't really know how she responded to the interaction. And I would love to have a conversation with her if she's willing about next steps to um, proceed in a more productive manner. Um, I hope that in watching the reaction of that interaction, <laughs> she, uh, like you said, learned from it and realized the power of her voice, especially to young people, to the future generations. And though she's been an extremely powerful force in American politics, that there's still things that she could have done that she didn't. Or, you know, and that goes for her peers as well. And so I think that conversation needs to be had about holding our politicians, even who were powerful people, accountable, because there's always something more that can be done. How did this sudden fame affect you? You were on uh, Amy Goodman, which is like, wow. You know, how, yeah. did, that, you know, how, did, the, how did this being suddenly, I mean, you're, you're a junior in high school being yeah. thrust into this national spotlight. What was that like? It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm dope. I love myself. And I like, it was dope. Thank you. It was really cool to be on, to talk, have Amy Goodman in my earpiece. That was crazy. And, you know, getting all of this attention. And that was really cool. And, you know, I just, I'm just a kid from Oakland. And now I'm like on national news. And some people know who my name is and are like listing it next to AOC. Like, that's crazy. But, I, I think that for me, what was important from that wasn't my fame, but my new platform and like that I can actually use my voice in a way that is impacting people who can make real policy change, can make the change that I've been wanting for so long. And so I just feel grateful to be able to have or to have had and 
hopefully continue to have the spotlight to have my voice heard in a way that's really impactful and meaningful. You, you say that um, respect is very important to you. You take it to every place you go, and yet there you were kind of interrupting a, a senator, you know, how do you challenge power <laughs> by being respectful? Mm -hmm. Is there a contradiction? Can you do both? You know, I think that truth is respectful and that you can speak truth in a way that is compassionate and authentic. And to me, that is respect. And, you know, I recognize that she is a well-respected politician. She is an elder in the community. And that I was to address her accordingly, but at the same time, I felt a very, I felt a responsibility to tell her the truth and to bring the truth to her, and that if she was gonna ignore the truth, that I had to continue to push my voice and to make sure that my voice was being heard in a space that she was trying to bring that down in. Sarah Goody, you had a climate awakening, and I think it was in sixth grade. Um, so tell us about that, you know, how you didn't know much about climate, your journey to where you are now to being a regular climate striker. Yeah, so um, I got involved with climate change in sixth grade after um, learning about climate change um, from my sixth grade teacher, Miss Rebecca Newburn. And uh, once I learned about climate change, I was absolutely terrified. I couldn't believe that the world had been hiding this issue from me for so long. You know, I looked at all my classmates and I thought, how many of them had actually known about this before this had started? Because truthfully, it was almost none. And after that, I started to feel accountable for what was happening. And I really wanted to make a difference. And I did that through eventually joining an organization called Greening Forward, uh, which is empowering youth to um, act for climate change and getting involved. And after that, I was at an event in New York for Greening Forward when I met Alexandria Villasenor, who is a 13-year-old uh, climate striker. She has currently been striking in front of the UN for, I believe, 19 weeks now. And I met her and was completely in awe. You know, she had brought all this attention and power to striking for climate change. And it's part of a movement called Fridays for Future, which was started by a youth activist, Greta Thunberg, in Sweden. And she brought this to the US and really worked and got people involved with it here in the US because, you know, climate change is affecting all of us, not just those who are in Sweden, it's everywhere. So I was really inspired by her and I went home and I started striking um, on my own in San Francisco. I started in front of City Hall and now I am in front of the Ferry Building on every Friday. So Sarah Goody, what's that like? You go in front of a, a you know iconic public building, you sit there by yourself. Are you, are you, are you by yourself? What's yeah. it like? <laughs> what do people say to you? What's that experience like being a 14-year-old sitting out there in public <laughs> saying, I'm striking for climate. Yeah, uh, it's a little bit daunting, I would say. <laughs> um, you know, people are definitely giving you stares, you know, why aren't you in school? You shouldn't be doing that. You know, I've had people come up to me 
climate change isn't real, go home, like go to school, you should be in school. But no, you know, why study for a future that's not going to exist? You know, I need to be here now and fighting now for my future. And um, I really just have to focus on the positive and focus on those people who do come up to me and are really like, wow, like I am, I am so glad. And it's, knowing that those people do exist, that do um, believe in climate change and do stand up for what's right. And it's really empowering to meet those people because I, I feel fulfilled and like I'm doing what I need to be doing. What do your parents think about skipping school? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that <laughs> uh, at, at first they were kind of skeptical, but um, you know, as a good student, I think they're really supportive of me and my passions, and they really believe that I'm doing this for the right cause, and that by doing this, I'm standing up for not just myself, but for my generation as well as future generations for what needs to be taken into account now. And they've been really supportive this whole time, and uh, yeah, they're awesome. listening to a Climate One conversation with two high school activists frustrated by their elders' failure to act more urgently on climate. Coming up, we'll hear more from Sarah Goody and Isha Clark. Our task is to fuel our fear into passion and determination. And I tell myself every day that there's no other option but to win this fight. Plus, we'll check in with the lawsuit brought by 21 young people accusing the federal government of violating their constitutional right to a healthy climate. The founding fathers put in the Constitution that they were creating the government in order to protect not just themselves, but posterity, which is future generations. So this is about the enduring value of our Constitution and our nation. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One, so you realize that it's time to pull every lever we have to solve the climate crisis. Unfortunately, it's easy to overlook the impact that our investments have on the environment. Many investment funds support companies that cause harm to people and the planet. But it doesn't have to be that way. Change Finance offers investments that are fossil fuel free and align with your values without sacrificing returns. Go to change-finance.net slash climate to learn more and start investing today. Change Finance is a registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell any product. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking to Isha Clark and Sarah Goody, two student activists fighting for climate action. Let's hear what Isha and Sarah had to say about another young activist on the other side of the world. As a 10-year-old, Sigur Ariel began organizing in his home country of Nepal, and making connections with other young people around the globe. Ariel now works with Plant for the Planet Initiative, a tree planting organization founded by a nine-year-old from Germany. We spoke to Ariel about his life path and how he's accomplished so much before the ripe old age of 23. I'd never imagined that Mount Everest, the tallest mountain of the world, would lose its snow, and that's something very troublesome for people who live in the foothills of Himalayas because the mountains, it balances climate, provides fresh water and tourism business for Nepal's economy. And when I came to hear about the fact that the overproduction of greenhouse gases, the rise in temperature, 
actually created havoc in climate crisis, I wanted to do something. I was uh, 10 years old when I first started a nonprofit initiative in Nepal. My peers supported me. We started a readers club. We wanted to read about these issues. We wanted to know what's going on. And just when we started in about two or three weeks, we had more than 3,000 books collected for us to read. In 2010, I was in a children's conference in Norway and I met a lot of other young people who were doing similar things. And there I heard about Plant for the Planet was um, founded by a nine-year-old kid and a bunch of other teenagers who were leading it. I felt that I was not alone trying to change the world or trying to change the climate crisis in a way because there I came to see that there are many, many other more children who have similar visions for the world and I wanted to be part of it. When I joined Plant for the Planet, the goal was to plant a million trees and now our goal is actually to plant a trillion trees around the world. It's very important that young people today should not rely on political promises and depend for others to change the world because we have seen recent events like Brexit, where if only all the young people had taken part, the outcomes would have been different. That was Sagar Ariel, chair of the board of Plant for the Planet. Isha and Sarah, your reaction to seeing someone like that? It's very powerful. And, you know, I think there needs to be a mix of people fighting for what we're calling the movement and people who are implementing tangible things, you know, um, and they're both equally important and impactful. And so to see someone take on planting a trillion trees, that's incredible. Um, and I love trees. I love oxygen. I love seeing <laughs> <Yeah>. green. <laughs> so all power to them. <laughs> yeah. Sarah Goody? Yeah, no, definitely. It's um, amazing to see that not only is it, you know, you know, a lot of people tend to think of the U.S. or places where it's really apparent that uh, people are acting up for climate change. But, you know, it's great to see that other places are getting involved because it's not just... Um, a problem facing one country. It's a problem facing the world and humanity as a whole. It's not just a group, it's everyone. And the fact that he is, you know, taking the initiative and starting his own thing, you know, planting a trillion trees is a lot. <laughs> but um, I think that's definitely showing uh, the power of youth and how we really have this undisturbed passion. You know, it's not swayed by money or greed or uh, work or anything. It's really true passion that comes from within us. And it really seems as though this movement is really being led by youth. And that's another great example of how. Isha Clark, how has this affected your voice and your identity, this experience? I feel like I have become so much stronger and more grounded in who I am. And I feel like I've started developing more of the courage to be who that is in every space, you know? In a lot of spaces, it's hard for a little black girl with her fist up to come in screaming. And so I've had to really be okay with that and know that that is an important voice in the room. And so through exercising that and having to practice how to do that, how to articulate myself while still being authentic and truthful um, has definitely lifted me. Sarah Goody, how about your identity and your voice through this experience? You're doing something very lonely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, 
Really, I think activism and being involved in climate change has really led me to find myself and my passions and to really feel like I can stand up for what I believe in. And I can now, you know, talk to people about what I really care about. And I feel like by doing this, I have really, um, you know, made a dent in myself and really found who I am and found what my purpose in life is. Do you talk about climate, uh, Sarah Goody, uh, at school, or do you, do you find it hard to talk to regular <laughs> teenagers <laughs> about the, you know, the climate situation? Yeah, well, I've always been told I'm like a very uh, wise beyond my age and <laughs> very mature. So, you know, um, when I see these people, I see them kind of as a younger version of myself, someone who's not really as mature someone who doesn't have the same skills and knowledge that I do. So it's definitely um, harder to talk to someone about climate change when what they want to talk about is like TikTok videos or, you know, what's the newest thing happening on Snapchat, you know? Um, so it's definitely harder to bring those conversations in, especially when I do, I usually get made fun of or I get, um, you know, people don't want to talk about those things because they don't want to feel guilty. Um, but luckily, I have a science teacher at my school who I feel real, I can always trust and talk to who has, you know, the same beliefs and ideals that I do. And that has really been what has grounded me throughout this experience is knowing that I have, you know, an ally and a mentor that I can trust and uh, confide in. Isha Clark, how has your peer group responded? Do you talk to them about climate? I mean, now, um, do they think it's relevant to them? You know, I think that a lot of young people have the potential to get involved in this movement and have the, the skills and the drive to be able to do that and don't have the resources to be able to get involved. And so I think that Yes, to answer your question, at school, I try to, when I'm not doing homework or <laughs> the million other things I'm doing at school, I try to talk to my friends and my peers and get them to come out to the events that I'm planning with Youth Versus Apocalypse. And some of them do show, and I think a lot of them are getting excited about this movement that at times can be very depressing. So I think there's so much potential in young people, even in the ones who are ignoring and wanting to do yeah. TikTok videos. I think there's, they just have to be reached a little bit harder. Yeah. When you say it's depressing, what do you do in those dark days? Because it it's, uh, can be pretty anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. When you look at the science, it's scary. What do, you, what do you do with that when you're so, I mean, adults have problems with that. Um, how do you deal with that when you're a teenager and you got so many other anxieties and, and darkness? How do you deal with that, Isha? Honestly, I go in my room and I light some sage and I read a book. <laughs> but um, on a serious note, I do no, do that. That's, but on, that's real, but on that's another great. note, <laughs> don't dismiss on that. A more, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. It really works. On a more um, general note, I should say, I think I always tell people that our task is to fuel our fear into fire and into passion and determination and I tell myself every day that there's no other option but to win this fight and if you really make yourself believe that I truly believe that what you put out into the world will manifest and so I continue to just say that mantra and it will come true. Sarah Goody, how do you deal with the anxiety or fear, knowing what you know, being climate conscious at such a young age? Yeah, um, it's definitely a lot, you know, uh, knowing that 
this will lead, if not acted upon now, to the end of humanity and our society. It, it's a lot, um, but I think by acting, I find that a really great way to cope with it because I know that I'm I'm doing my part and I feel like I'm finally, you know, like there is hope. So that's definitely one way I cope with it. But um, more of what Yisha said with her sage, um, I definitely, I think an escape for me is I love to dance and I love to do theater. So it's finding those outside uh, things to do because even though we are so devoted to this cause, we also need a little bit of, you know, brightness and relief in our life as well. Yeah, it can consume you. I interviewed Bill McKibben a few years ago who said, look, you know, this is, we talk about climate and science and all these things. This is about power. This, you know, the, the climate argument was won in the 80s and the 90s. This is really about power. So Sarah's from a wealthy community. Mm -hmm. Isha is from a not wealthy community. And I want to talk about wealth and power and whether that needs to be addressed as part of climate, Isha. Oh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> you know, I, I completely agree. It is the entire fight. Climate change is an absolute fact, and it has been for decades. And at this point, it's about changing this mystical connotation that comes with talking about climate change and politics and really changing it to something that is serious and that needs to be taken seriously. We have the presidential elections coming up right now, and we need to make it clear that you have to take us not only addressing that climate change is real and man-made, that's not enough anymore. You have to talk about what solutions you are planning to implement, because at this point, we have no time to waste. We know climate change is real. What are you going to do about it? Sarah, what do you think, you know, your community, people are very privileged, mostly white, you know, do they feel, are they aware of climate change? Do you think that climate change can be addressed without unsettling and changing some of the privilege and wealth in that community? Yeah, I think uh, privilege definitely plays a part in, you know, climate change and how, you know, those who are going to be most affected by climate change are going to be less privileged. Um, and I think definitely in a more privileged or wealthy community, it's um, definitely, I think, lower on the spectrum of what people are aware of. I think people are definitely more interested in their own lives, and I think that's a part of kind of our mantra as a uh, you know, country that we're striving for, you know, money or to be the best at something or, you know, to have the most power when really it should be, you know, how are we going to make uh, a society that's the best place for everyone to live in? And I definitely think that politicians need to act now. It, it's it's not something that we can wait till, you know, 2050 as <laughs> Diane Diane Feinstein, yeah, 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 no, no, it's, it's been proven, it's, it's been proven, scientists, we have to trust these people, I mean, they, they say we have till 2030, we, we can't prolong that, we can't make false claims. Student activists Isha Clark and Sarah Goody, you're listening to Climate One. Our program on youth climate action continues as we welcome two more relatively young activists, Marissa Zuckerman. Bay Area coordinator of the Sunrise Movement, and Ben Wessel, youth vote director at Next Gen America, as well as Julia Olson, chief legal counsel for the plaintiffs in Juliana versus United States. I began by asking Marissa Zuckerman of Sunrise Movement, the grassroots organization behind the Green New Deal, how to best understand the policy that's got everyone talking climate. 
the Green New Deal is not actually a policy yet. It is a vision, uh, a very bold one, of what it would look like to transform every sector of our economy and society in order to take on climate change at the scale and level that both science and justice demand. So it is, uh, as of now, just um, a vision of what that policy could look like or what that set of policies um, could become over the next two years. And that's part of what Sunrise is doing, um, is helping to support a movement of young people to make this an urgent political priority um, so that the Green New Deal can become law. Julie Olson, your case has been uh, in the courts for some number of years. I think I did my first interview about it back in 2011. It, it goes way back. What is the basic legal argument of Juliana versus the United States, and what are you trying to accomplish? So 21 young people have sued the federal government for violating their fundamental rights under the Fifth Amendment to life, liberty, and property. And for the first time ever, a federal judge has recognized that we all, all these young people, have a right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life under the US Constitution. So we're about to go up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to argue and, and try to hold on to that really solid ruling so we can go to trial. Michael Gerard is an expert at the Columbia Law School, runs the Climate Law Center there. He says he's surprised that uh, this case has gotten that far. He also says that the courts rarely declare new rights and that the Supreme Court has made it clear in American Power versus Connecticut that EPA sets pollution standards, not the courts. What do you say to that? Well, we fully agree that EPA should set standards that protect your, your life. <laughs> so we, we don't disagree uh, with that. Uh, this case is different. It's a constitutional case. It's about civil rights, not uh, environmental statutory law. And what the case really says is that for over 50 years, we have evidence that your government has known that if they continue to promote a fossil fuel energy system, that it would cause the climate emergency that we have today. And with that knowledge, they continued to create policies and plans and promote and subsidize the fossil fuel energy system that we are all locked into. And that is an infringement of the young plaintiffs in this case, fundamental rights to life and personal security and family autonomy and all of the things that we depend upon for our well-being and our safety. So there's been lots of legal maneuvering with this under President Obama, certainly under President Trump. Uh, what happens if you lose at the Ninth Circuit? Is it game over for your suit? No. <laughs> um, I actually think this case is really appeals to not just the liberals on the bench, but it appeals to conservative values. Um, what we're challenging is the abuse of government power. We're fighting for liberty and rights that are foundational to our nation. And actually, the founding fathers, they understood about the importance of the climate system and soil and water to the wealth and prosperity of the nation. And they put in the Constitution that they were creating the government in order to protect not just themselves, but posterity, which is future generations. So this is about the enduring value of our Constitution and our nation. 
Ben Wessel, uh, the 2018 midterms marked a 100-year high for voter turnout. Spiked uh, in 2018, the shift was especially notable among young voters, where uh, 36% of people 18 to 29 cast the ballots, uh, almost 50% people 30 to 44. Um, is this sustainable? Will this kind of sag back down? Tell us the, the significance of it. Well, that. we're doing a lot of work to make sure that that doesn't happen, Greg. <laughs> um, yeah, we saw record turnout, thanks on behalf to lots of activism from folks like the folks in this room, and we saw uh, record youth turnout, like Greg mentioned, the highest uh, turnout rate amongst young people, especially since we lowered the voting age to 18 in 1971. And part of the reason, I think, is a reaction to Donald Trump and the Republicans and their policies that have been put in place to uh, make our lives as young people a little bit more difficult. But it's also a recognition that young people have a lot of power. There are more of us than there are of any other generation, and we're the more, most progressive generation that's ever come through uh, American politics. Um, but we turn out at half the rates as older folks. Like, we know that that's true. Um, politicians listen to those who show up. So if we show up, then they'll have to listen to us. And we see young people across the country, whether it's a mayoral race or a presidential race, uh, starting to recognize that truth and organize themselves in order to start changing the people who are in power. And you work for an organization that's funded by Tom Steyer, was largely seen as laying the groundwork for his presidential campaign. He said he's not running. So how does that work for you in terms of being fund so associated by one wealthy person? It's very top-down compared to the other organizations we're talking to here, which are not driven by one. Yeah, I can recommend finding one wealthy person and have them fund your <laughs> life's work. It's, uh, I, I feel incredibly lucky that Tom is a gracious benefactor. Um, but I challenge the idea that it's top down. We're actually incredibly bottom up. Just today I was hanging out with our 10 state directors who work in our 10 states. We're all young people who are organizing in the communities in which they grew up. And it's an incredibly diverse bunch that come to this politics for a bunch of different reasons. Some are, are driven uh, by climate justice. Some are focused on health care. Some are focused on uh, gun violence prevention. And some are looking at the intersection of all those. And one of the things that's incredibly cool about Tom is he recognizes um, that he's not a young person and that he doesn't know what's going to attract young people. And I bet if we asked him what a TikTok video was, he would have zero idea. So instead, uh, we've been very lucky to have a, a donor and supporter and true collaborator in this effort who's listening to the voices of young people. And I think we could use more people in our politics who would do the same. So what's the plan then for looking out at 2020? Climate typically has not been a top issue at the, at the ballot box. Is that changing now? Sure. I mean, I think Marissa and her team at Sunrise have done a phenomenal job of making sure that this Democratic presidential primary is, is uh, talking about climate change in a way that I don't think any of us necessarily expected. And now we've got to run with that momentum. I think one of the things that will be very interesting to see is, uh, is this soft support? So we're seeing polls that say climate change is the number one issue for Democratic primary voters, um, even in Iowa and New Hampshire, not just nationwide. Uh, is this soft support? Or once folks start lobbying attacks on the Green New Deal, um, will the voters stand up and say, no, this is really important to me, and this is how I'll base my decision? Um, I know from all the young people that I'm talking to and that our team is talking to, uh, that will always ring true. These are young people who are growing up hearing from stories about, honestly, how screwed their future is if we don't take uh, drastic action right now. And one of the things that I'm really in awe of is that they are not being discouraged, but rather that fact is making them double down on their commitment to our politics, which is real exciting. You were a child, You're listening to a conversation about youth taking action to safeguard their future. This is Climate One. Coming up, 
more about how today's young activists are demanding more than just lip service from their political leaders. We're looking for a firm public commitment that this will be the defining issue of the next presidency because it's the defining issue of our time. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about youth climate action in the courts and at the ballot box with Marissa Zuckerman, Bay Area coordinator of the Sunrise Movement, Ben Wessel, youth vote director at Next Gen America, and Julia Olson, chief legal counsel for plaintiffs in Juliana versus United States. Let's listen as Marissa Zuckerman explains how the Sunrise Movement successfully pressured Bader O'Rourke to follow up on his climate policy announcement by pledging that his campaign would not take donations from fossil fuel interests. One of the things that Sunrise has been doing alongside other movement allies is calling out the hypocrisy of what it means to be putting forward a plan on climate while simultaneously accepting uh, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of dollars from the industry that is condemning my generation's future um, to be unlivable. And any politician who wants to be taken seriously and wants to be seen as legitimate uh, in caring about the climate crisis and acting on that scale cannot also be accepting donations from the very same industry. And Sunrise, if I recall correctly, there's a democratic debate in Detroit at the end of July, and Sunrise is saying that, what do you want to happen? You're putting some pressure and focus on that debate in July. Yeah, that's right. So um, over the past few weeks, Sunrise has been traveling around the country um, and has held a series of over 200 town halls um, with community groups uh, to build support for the Green New Deal. And we've seen incredible turnout. And the next step is the debate at the end of July. Um, and this is really a time to put uh, all candidates' feet to the fire and say, um, yes, it's great that you're maybe taking this pledge and uh, giving soft support. Um, now we're seeing more concrete plans. And we want you to promise publicly that the Green New Deal, that climate action, that action on racial and economic justice will be a day one priority. Uh, we've seen that we're going to have a really narrow window in which we can try to pass the Green New Deal after, hopefully, we regain the White House in 2020. Um, so that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a firm public commitment that this will be the defining issue um, of the next presidency because it's the defining issue of our time. Ben Wessel, we've really traveled some distance. In 08, Obama and McCain were basically the same place. It was drill, baby, drill, but they were both for cap and trade. And then we went through a couple elections where climate didn't get mentioned at all. And now we have the candidates kind of duking it out. You know, Beto comes out with $5 trillion and Inslee says $9 trillion and Biden's getting slapped for not being uh, ambitious enough. Going back to Obama's not good enough. Uh, ben Wessel, so how is this going to play out? Is this going to have staying power through the campaign or is it going to kind of fade when immigration and healthcare really come forward? I think one of the things that I've learned from the young people that I work with and that, that Marissa and some of the, the young activists we heard from earlier, um, 
these are not disparate issues, right? This is one intersectional movement that has to address our racial injustices, our climate injustices, and our economic injustices. I actually think the Democratic primary electorate is recognizing that more than ever before. And so, you know, I worked on campaigns in 08 and 10 and 12 where it was like, okay, what are our top three issues that we need to put on the top of our website? Um, that doesn't exist in the same way that it did before. Our politics has changed. And part of that, I think, is the, the growing influence of uh, a, an electorate that is much younger, especially Democratic electorate that's much younger, that uh, doesn't want to rank issues. But we say all these are tied for number one, and we need to address all of them using one fundamental, fundamental solution. And whenever you try to divide us into immigration people, healthcare people, and climate people, um, well, frankly, just sort of laugh in your face, because that's not who we are. So the polls look to say these days that a lot of people care about climate, but Ben Wessel and Australia, there was an election and coal won. Uh, Washington is in one of the most progressive states in the country, liberal state. They rejected a carbon price twice. France, 83% of the people say climate is a threat and they scrapped fuel taxes because people protested. Mm -hmm. So polls and politics, there, it seems like democracies are zigging and zagging on climate, which really raises a question for me about whether you know, there can be enough public support for this or whether it will get to the courts where, where it needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, I would say the power of a prepared activist populace is one of the best things that we can do now. There's lots of things that we can't control. One of the things we can control is building a broad-based movement that's willing to hold our politicians' feet to the fire. I think one of the things that we have now, as opposed to the last time we attempted to pass climate policy, is we have a real, true movement that's invested in this, uh, rather than just some high-paid uh, PR folks in DC. Um, and so I am hoping that that will be enough. I also know we don't know what's going to happen. I think if you had had us on this stage this far out of the 2016 election, none of us would have said um, that President 45 would be in there. So uh, I am looking forward to helping build the movement over the course of the next year and a half to make sure that we can hold um, our elected officials that this happens on day one and that we don't have a situation uh, like they have in France, for example. Julie Olson, uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, uh, tell us where the court was was relative to public opinion then and where it is relative to public opinion now? Yeah, so in 1954, only 30% of Americans supported desegregation. And yet the Supreme Court issued a landmark decision that has been critical for our nation. And it came 50 years too late, it came 50 years after Plessy versus Ferguson, which said separate but equal are constitutional. And we don't have 50 years on climate, right? I think what Brown v. Board and other cases like it tell us is when an issue is not deemed fundamental and when it doesn't have constitutional protection, then the political winds that shift from one administration to the next can change the game. And so what we hope to do through our case in, in lifting up the voice of youth in the judiciary, our third branch of government, is to secure the binding constitutional mandate that forces the people in, in the presidency and in the legislature to actually adopt laws and policies that comply with its constitutional obligation. If we don't have that, then we're still playing the game. And so it's critical that we're working in all three branches of government, and I'm just so excited to see the youth movement putting the pressure on all of the political leaders and being in the streets and everywhere. We need action on all fronts. We're in an emergency. 
Julie Olson, I vividly remember something you said to me probably five years ago, which is a lot of environmentalism is a game of whack-a-mole. You know, you stop this coal terminal in Oakland or Bell, Bellingham or wherever, and it just comes up somewhere else. You stop Keystone, it feels like a victory, and the oil goes on trains or somewhere else. So tell us about that, that theory of whack-a-mole and why you think the courts are the answer. Yeah, so I think the, the problem we have, it's a system of power, and, but it is a system. It's a systemic problem. So when we try to stop the, the piecemeal parts of the system, we're not really addressing the dysfunctional whole. And it's why um, the case, the Juliana case, really challenges that whole fossil fuel energy system. Uh, I found as a litigator that going after one project at a time wasn't getting us to where we needed to go. And we have to go after the whole system, including the economic and racial injustices that we still have in this country. Marissa Zuckerman, uh, when you were, I believe you were still in college in 2014, you engaged in some civil disobedience in Richmond with your mom. Tell us what it was like to do that. Yeah, well, I was born and raised in Oakland. And when I was in high school, uh, was here um, driving over the Bay Bridge when the uh, Chevron refinery in Richmond exploded uh, and sent 15,000 people to the hospital. Um, Richmond uh, has been a community that has been uh, impacted by Chevron um, and other companies like it who have systematically targeted communities of color, low-income communities, um, to place their pollution and their extraction and their refining. Um, So... As a white person, as a person who does have the option, um, the legal status, to be able to risk arrest, um, it was an option for me, and I chose to do it. Um, And I uh, went with my mom and my godmother and Bill McKibben and um, hundreds of other local community activists from Richmond um, and other people from around the Bay Area who uh, sat in in front of the Chevron refinery um, as part of a, a national um, wave of action at refinery sites um, around the country to call attention to the injustices that are happening um, in our backyard that many people um, don't know about or are turning a blind eye to. I think investigation of that fire afterwards found that there was a, a pipe that actually bypassed some monitoring uh, equipment there at that Chevron refinery. and not sure if that ever... Um, what came of that. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Julie Olson, Executive Director of Our Children's Trust and the Chief Legal Counsel for the Plaintiffs in Juliana versus the United States, and Ben Wessel, Youth Vote Director at Next Gen America, and Marissa Zuckerman, Bay Area Chapter Coordinator for the Sunrise Movement. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask um, association. I'm just going to mention something, and Ben Wessel and the others are going to mention the first thing that pops into their mind, unfiltered, with um, reckless abandon. Um, Ben Wessel, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the climate plan advanced by Republican elders George Schultz and Jim Baker? Not enough. Julie Olson, what comes to mind when I say Jerry Brown's climate legacy? Not not enough. (laughs) Marissa Zuckerman, cap and trade. (laughs) I didn't plan it this way. Not enough. (laughs) True or false, uh, Ben Wessel, you feel like the token male guest on this program. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Julia Olson, 
True or false, you are tired of environmental lawyers opining about constitutional law about which they know very little. True. Marissa Zuckerman, you wish you had the courage of Isha Clark and Sarah Goody when you were a teenager. So true. Seconded. Julie Olson, true or false, you rejected a settlement offer from the Obama administration that would have established a constitutional right to a stable climate. False. <laughs> true or false, Ben Wessel, the best thing a climate activist can do this election cycle is defeat Republicans where they live. True. Very true. Hat tip to Dave Roberts at Vox for that one. Last one for uh, Ben Wessel, true or false, no young people care what a 60-year-old billionaire from San Francisco has to say. I hope false. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give them a round for thanking, getting through the lightning round. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. From someone who is young at heart, I want to thank all of you and ask you, what are you saying to Republican-based young people, and what are they saying to you? Ben Wessel. Yeah, great question. So one of the things that we have the privilege of doing is working in places like Iowa or Wisconsin or Florida or central Pennsylvania where we do meet a lot of Republican young people. Honestly, the first thing we do is ask them to change their party affiliation. Uh, but, but beyond that, um, we find a lot of young Republicans are with us on the issues. And frankly, they oftentimes are Republicans as an artifact of what their parents are. So we're out there encouraging people to educate themselves on the issues and where the candidates um, of both parties stand. And when you take off the partisan labels, we find that those young people are often gravitating towards the more progressive candidates. So I'm incredibly bolstered uh, by the fact that there are so-called Republican young people who are becoming more progressive voters. And we know we can't get everyone. And so we stop trying after a certain point. Don't waste your time beating your head against a wall. Next question. Welcome. Yeah, Wilfred Welch. I feel strongly that the younger people must lead this activist revolution and the momentum. And I really want to go further as to what you all think as the role of the older generations in support of that. What does mm. that intergenerational collaboration and action look like? I, so I think it's standing next to the youth. So it's not necessarily standing behind them or in front of them, but it is, it's opening the door and being in solidarity and standing beside them, but letting them have the platform because they do need our support. They need us to open the doors. They need to have mentors and, and guidance and they need to understand constitutional law, for example. They need representation, but standing beside them and not putting them on a pedestal either. So youth are often now put on a pedestal of you are our hope and you are our solution. And that puts a huge burden on these young people because we it's all our problem too. And so just really standing beside them. Last question. Hello, my name is Sally Morton, and this question is for Julia Olson. Thank you so much for all you've done. Um, I am an aspiring and young environmental lawyer, and I aspire to do the, excuse my language, the badass shit that you're doing. So do you have any um, suggestions for a young, aspiring climate lawyer? Come work for us as a law clerk. I'd <laughs> <laughs> be happy and to. And we, we actually, we take a lot of volunteer lawyers and law students, and there's a lot of opportunity to get involved. So hook up with an organization you care about and start doing the good work. I think that's the best advice. Julie Olson, Executive Director of Our Children's Trust, 
and the chief legal counsel for the plaintiffs in Juliana versus United States. We also heard from Ben Wessel, youth vote director at NextGen America, and Marissa Zuckerman, Bay Area coordinator of the Sunrise Movement. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Our audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.